Thank you, worship team. Good morning, High Point. Um, my name is Femi. Um, welcome to High Point this morning. I'm going to be reading the scripture today. I'm one of the elders here. Um, the scripture for the day is Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 29 through 32. This can be found on page 1779 in your pew Bible. Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Amen. Thanks, Femi. Hey, everyone. Appreciate that. Um, so this is my uh, Tumblr from the Lost and Found. It has three Hellbox stickers on it. It's a Yeti. It has a Man Outfitters sticker on it, too. So it's either a guy or a woman who likes very functional clothing. Okay. Um, So, uh, for the, if you're newer, we're going through this series in the second half of the book of Ephesians called Being Made New. It's kind of our fall gig, and we're focusing specifically on how the first three and a half chapters of Ephesians teaches us how to live as a new humanity being redeemed in Christ, that Christ really can make you new, that hu human beings changing really is possible. We can—it's very easy to be cynical and jaded about people changing because it, it's one of those things that really can happen and then—but kind of rarely does. And because we don't change, because we don't think it's possible, we confirm our cynicism that it's not possible, and then we believe all the more firmly that it's not possible. There's lots of things we don't think are possible that are possible, and that happen all the time, you know? Um, one of the things I was thinking about as we were—I was working through this passage is that in our lives, in terms of our preferences, what we like, there's a lot of things that sort of go together, right? Like, like bacon and eggs, that's one of my favorites. Or coffee and donuts. I don't really like coffee, but a lot of people like that. that that's Walt Pepler's favorite right there. Hamburgers and french fries. Uh, eggs and potato, that's a, that's a favorite there. Um, this one I don't think is morally right, the Xanax and wine. But it's—people apparently like it that goes together, right? Peanut butter and jelly goes together, right? One of the things that this passage is kind of assuming as it's teaching us what it's teaching is that there's other things that go together with human beings that are not great, that go together inside of us, like destructive speech and malicious rage. Um, they just—they kind of go together. We get upset about things. We feel hurt. We feel indignant. We feel like an outrage has happened to us. We, we are people who very much hold on to things. We tend to be pretty repressed about believing that about ourselves, and so we tend to be in denial about it. And so we think that we're nice people that don't hold any grudges while we're being passive-aggressively mean to people all around us. But it's, it's one of the things that the apostle hits right away because he knows really well how real this is. And the Lord, no matter how much in denial we all want to be about it, the Lord knows really well exactly what we're like about this. Does that make sense? And so he's dealing with both— the heart issue of the fact that we are malicious creatures without the transformation of Jesus and his spirit and the truth of the gospel changing us and making us new. And we then 
in that maliciousness, have the symptoms of malice, and then we talk with that malice. Does that make sense? So what I want to do for a little bit here is I want to explore this idea that the new humanity in Christ, that is, when we're converted, changed, regenerate with the Holy Spirit, God is changing us. We're experiencing this new humanity that really can be made new. That when that happens, there's at least two things that happen. One is we start to learn and grow in suppressing sin. I'll get to what that means in a minute. And expelling malice. Every Christian, if you're in the game, if you're following Jesus, if the Spirit is working in you, you are doing at least these two things. You are A, you are always doing the work of suppressing sin. Specifically in this context, it will be speaking badly, right? And two, you are expelling malice. You're stopping the sin from coming out, and you're dealing with the real problem of why it's there. Does that make sense? Okay, so first I want to go through the negative argument, and then we'll go through the positive arguments. So don't think you're getting off easy, okay? So the negative argument is these three things. Don't let the rotten words out. Two, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. And three, don't harbor the anger and hurt. Just don't harbor it. Okay, so here's—let's break this down. The first is don't let any rotten words leave your mouth. Okay, so I want you to see from this passage, it says, don't let any old, unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Now you might think that's a figurative translation, an English idiom, don't let it come out of your mouth. That is literally what the Greek text says. It literally says, rotten words, rotten or unhelpful or unusable words, just do not let them exit your mouth. That's what it says. So what this, this passage is not saying, you should never feel like you want to say mean things. It's not saying that you—it'll ne never occur to you to say mean things. It won't even say—it doesn't even say that you won't breathe in air in which to say mean things. It just simply says, act number one of trying to live out the hum new humanity of Jesus is that you don't let them come out of your lips. Does that make sense? It is entirely a legalism in the sense that it's a law that you just do and you don't feel like it. You're not going to feel like it. You're not going to want to do it. You're not going to like it. You're not even going to probably agree with it, especially when you're angry. It is a sheer law. Do not let such talk exit your face. Period. You have no idea how much damage it does. No idea. How, and we live in a culture right now, because of typing and stuff, where we have a huge excess of words. The strong, silent type is all but unheard of. Now we have the loud type, who speaks about something they know nothing about, right? And that's what we honor. We don't even have very many characters in our art anymore who are strong, silent types. That's why the show Avatar is so great, right? But like, this is a major, major thing. You don't let it come out of your mouth. And if you do, you can objectively know it is an objective wrong that you have sinned against the Lord. Does that make sense? We got that? Okay, great. Let's move on. All right. Now, some people will say to that, Nick, because this is clearly not just about speech. For the Christian, this is about all sins. Anything that Scripture says is socially unloving, personally damaging, and divinely dishonoring, is this thing that Scripture calls sin. A missing of the mark. A brokenness of reality. Something that is unfitting to what we were made for. Right? It is, is, is morally damnable, and we were not meant to live in it. 
right? And so in every case where something is sin, it is our responsibility as Christians to be actively suppressing it. Now, some people will say, well, Nick, if I don't do the things that are in my heart to do, they'll just, they'll just bubble up in there. I'm, I'm like pressing it down, and it, I'm like a little bottle. And like, if you put a cork on that bottle, the pressure, it rises and rises, and I'm just going to explode. Right? And that, that lie and misunderstanding about things is very, is very difficult for people to get past. And sometimes they will, without knowing much about psychology, they'll say, that's like, I feel like repressing yourself. It's repressing things. You're repressing things. You can't—that's unhealthy. Freud said that's unhealthy. You can't repress things. Okay, first of all, you're completely misunderstanding what the word repress means if you think that way. And we almost all think that way. Right? Suppressing something means using self-control to resist an urge or drive. Right? You want to say something mean, you just don't say it. Right? You want to do something wrong with your sexuality, you just don't do it. Like, you take control of yourself— and you don't do the thing you want to do either in your sensuality or your sentimentality. You like the idea of it, or your, your neurology and hormones want you to do it. It seems like it would pleasure you either in that sort of like emotional way or sensorial way, and so you're like, I should just do this. And, you, and the answer is, no, you just don't. You just don't. Your capacity to hold back the things that you do that are destructive is so great. It's, um, it's incredible. That the, and the more you invest in self-control, the better you get at it. And the longer you do that in endurance, the easier it becomes. So for example, when I was 20, it felt impossible to honor God with my sexuality. It felt impossible. Now it doesn't feel impossible at all. It feels easy. But I'm 42, and I've been doing this for 20-something years. Now, honoring God with my sexuality all, it always takes a little bit of trace energy. Because I always have to be aware and ready for new temptations coming in. So it's never—I never get the power level to zero on, on almost any temptation. There's always this sort of like tracer-sensor amount of energy to be aware and vigilant about what's coming. But the amount of personal emotional energy it takes for me now not to look at pornography or not to do something that is sexually injurious and sinful isn't hard for me anymore. Right? But it, it's not because, like, I was born this way. I was born an extremely sensual creature. I'm a very feely and sensitive person. I know you, in certain ways. In certain ways. <laughs> like, like, I just— Physical touch is one of my love languages. My wife just touches my neck. It just—it does something for me that, like, gift-giving can't do. Like, I'm just—I'm a—I'm a sensory kind of person. And so this was not easy for me, but it's really not that hard anymore. Because over long practice, you can get to where it doesn't get down to zero effort, but it can get down to, like, a trace level of effort. Repression is actually a, a fairly specific phenomenon where you actually use some kind of internal defense mechanism to try to not know something that you can't not know. So for example, you're an insecure person, and you do a bunch of things, and you think a bunch of thoughts so that you convince yourself that you're not an insecure person, that you're a really secure person. 
And so you, you have all these behaviors and defense mechanisms that demonstrate and show in how you dress and how you act and how you speak and what you do that you're a really secure person. And you can't really accept about yourself that right now you're a very insecure person. And what happens is you can't not know that you're insecure. Right? Or you can't not know that you were abused by men in your life and you distrust all of them. Or you can't not know these deeper primal things that none of us want to believe about ourselves. How unsophisticated we are. How we feel like we're just stupid. How we feel like nobody's ever going to stay with us. That everybody's going to ultimately leave. All these things that they don't tend to be these, these sort of rational thought structures. They tend to be extremely primal needs related to our security or our desire or our sense of safety or our sense of being wanted. Right? And so we, we teach ourselves to not know what we know about ourselves. And then they come back with great revenge. Right? Repression and suppression are completely different things. If you come to Jesus and you submit yourself to him deeply and fully, you will become much stronger in suppressing, and you'll become much freer from repressing at the same time. You'll learn terrible things about yourself that you will learn to know are true, and you'll face them and you'll deal with them, and you'll grow in them, and you'll become a less repressed person, all the while being much more powerful in self-control and your capacity to suppress sin, which will lead to a very beautiful life. Many of our neighbors who buy into this confusion live without suppressing their sin because they believe that would be repressive, all the while completely unaware of the things destroying their hearts that they are repressing. We live in one of the most repressed cultures that we have ever created as a nation that is simultaneously not suppressing anything. And what we need is exactly the opposite. People willing to suppress sin, including all the ugly things they say, and then to turn to Jesus and let him tell you that your heart is filled with malice. And we need to get rid of it and stop grieving the Spirit and learn what it would be like to please the Spirit, to repent, to get rid of our anger and malice, to really forgive others, and to grow so that suppressing is anywhere near as hard anymore. Right? So, in order to do this, you have to A, just not let it out of your mouth, and two, you need to realize when your advice or when the things you're saying that you think are for other people's good really are just serving you. Right? It's a classic mother-in-law, right? Oops, sorry. Classic mother-in-law, like, I'm going to say this for you, but it's really for me. But all of us do that all the time. We want to persuade ourselves that what we're saying is really for another person's good, but you would never really say it that way if it was for their good. And do they need to hear it right now? Second thing is, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The first literally says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Now, what that means is, it, yes, the Bible in many places, specifically and intentionally— uses feeling language for God. Right? Now, for some of you, you're like, well, of course it does. Of course it does. Some people, though, are going to be hung up on this in some way because of the doctrine of impassibility, that like, God doesn't have emotions the way we do. So this has to be some kind of metaphor. Well, maybe or maybe not. I mean, how do you really know that? But secondly, God so reveals how we should think about him and his internal emotional life that is probably far more complicated than we think it is in emotional language, okay? So whether or not this is literally how God feels through things, what we can know is that God so looks at us with love 
We want to believe that's emotional, right? We want to believe that in his love, it's not just a— it's not just a— philosophical belief that God holds, but that God has an adoration for us, that he adores us, right? Similarly then, it should, it should be clear to us that it, we could do things that would also grieve him. And he's like, listen, realize that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. And so one of the things I think is very helpful about this is that when it, you're experiencing the new humanity in Christ and you're trying to be made new, and you're like, well, how do I know what to do? and not do. Well, one of the simplest ways to know what to do is, and not do is the more you get a sense of who Jesus is, and who God the Father is, and who the Holy Spirit is, it's very simple to be like, what would please them? What would please God in the work of Christ, and how Christ behaves, and acts, and teaches, or the way the Father behaves, and acts, and teaches, or the way the Spirit works in people's lives, knowing that about the character of God, what would please him, and what would grieve him? Right? To which— this sort of like secular rejoinder religion will destroy you objection would be something like, yeah, but then you'd be, you're li really just living for someone else. You're not even living your own life. You'll be an empty shell of a person who isn't even a real self. Well, maybe. But the Bible might also be right that in sin you're already just a shell of a self. And that if you're made in God's image, moving toward the self that is God will make you more yourself than you've ever been. Plus, He's the only fully good self. So when you're trying to please God, you are doing the thing that is objectively, morally, the most pleasing thing. And in the end, as you are formed more into his image, you will be more and more pleased by yourself what pleases him. So it says in, for example, Romans chapter 12, it says, um, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll know what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Well, does pleasing there refer to pleasing God or pleasing you? And the answer is yes. Right? As you are transformed, no longer conformed to the world, but more transformed by a renewal of the gospel, changing us into the image of Christ, God's will will be something you'll understand better. And as you understand it better, you'll realize it's good. Because God realizes it's good, and you'll realize it's good. Right? God already realizes his will is perfect, but you'll realize that his will is perfect. And God already realizes that his will is pleasing, and you will become increasingly yourself pleased with God's will. So you will become what you're meant to be. You will become more the right self you were created to be. You'll be less the false self that sin is making you. You'll please God. His will will please you. And when you do what's actually right and loving, guess what will happen to all the other people in your life? It'll be pleasing to them, too. Now, they might not be pleased, depending on how much of the real self is res resident in them, whether or not they're living for the will of God. But what you will do will be what should be pleasing to someone who is living in a redeemed humanity. But it'll also make it so you're not easily manipulated, right? So somebody like, well, if you live for somebody else, you'll be manipulated. Yeah, if you live for somebody else you shouldn't be living for, that's true. Right? Whoops. Where am I going here? That's true. However, if you live for the one that is the proper representation of what you're called to be, the one who loves you entirely, and the one who's working out his will in the whole world around you, what that'll really do is make it so that other people can't manipulate you. Should you do what that other person—okay, you're not going to do what maybe you want to do in your sensuality and your sentimentality because you know that that's shot through with sin, right? And you're regrowing that spiritual sensitivity of the moral heart your conscience should have in Christ— but then what do you do if you don't do what you want to do? Do you just do what the other person wants you to do? And the answer is no. 
You do what God wants you to do. So you're freer from the lie of sin working in you, but you're also not then easily manipulated by the people outside of you telling you what their expectations are. In that sense, you become in the virtue of pleasing God free. Free to do the good, free from the false expectations of others, free from the false selves created by sin in you, and more free to be redeemed living like Jesus and living out the real humanity you were made to have as you are made in the image of God. And then the Spirit is not grieved, but pleased, and you become less grieved and more pleased. And more pleasing to those who know what should be pleasing. Right? The third thing is, get rid of all malice. Get rid of all the malice. Verse 31 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Now, in the original text, this get rid of verb right here actually is right here in the sentence. So it's all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander, get rid of, along with every form of malice. Now, why is that important? The reason that's important is because all of these are really just symptoms of malice. Right? Now, what are these things? Okay, if you, if you go through these, what the text means, bitterness is essentially holding on to a right to still judge another person, desiring that they would be found guilty for what they've done and or punished for what they've done. And that you hold on to that. Right? Rage, or the, wor- the word translated rage, is a word of flaring up anger. Stereotypically, the Mediterranean temperament. Right? Like, the, there's, you know how there's some people that, like, something happens, they get really mad right away. They get mad in a moment. They're yelling. They're angry. They're, they're red-faced. They may throw things— to, they may be different levels of destructive, but the anger comes on right then. And then, after the wrath has come and gone, they kind of settle down, and they may not even remember what they said. They're not angry about it anymore. Right? They're like, a, they're like a forest fire that just burns through fast, and then it burns out, and the fire is gone, but the destruction is still left behind. Right? Some folks are like that. And they think—of course, they think that's better than the alternative, which is wrath, which is a kind of held-on to settled indignation that is ready to punish you, right? And that believes it's completely justified. Now, that's the same word wrath that's sometimes used of God. The difference is, is that God's justifications for his wrath are a lot better than ours. And our belief that we can have some wrath against God are completely unjustified. So when we engage in wrath, it's not that wrath is in itself wrong. It's that our justifications for our wrath are really terrible. We don't have the right to hold on to our wrath because we're forgiven people ourselves. And we're not the right person to adjudicate wrath. We don't, we're not in that position of authority. That's God's position. So to say that we should let wrath go doesn't mean that God should let wrath go. Does that make sense? Don't extrapolate the two because they're not the same. Our wrath is rooted in our sinfulness, our self-justification. Now, this is a more settled feeling. This is a more momentary display. But they're coming from the same thing. So the standard very self-controlled, sublimated person who has wrath for others, like he realizes that in indignation a great outrage has happened and something should happen to these people. We should do something about it. But they don't flare up in anger. You can hardly tell. You basically know they probably don't like you by how they're talking to you, but they hold it in. Those people tend, tend to think that they're better than these shouters. You know what I mean? They tend to think that this is very vulgar and commonplace. It's so pedestrian. Right? That person wasn't parented well. I'm so much better, right? Be careful, because you stick out like a sore thumb to God. Okay? The, the next word that's translated in the enemy, brawling, 
would include literally fighting, right? So if you're like given like literally getting in physical fights because you have so much malice towards others, you need to stop doing that, okay? But what the, the word means more specifically, and you can see this in the New American Standard Translation or the English Standard Version Translation, is they use the word clamor, right? The, the idea of clamor is, is that there's multiple loud voices simultaneously sounding off. So it's the multiple people yelling at each other, right? I don't have to listen to you. I don't care if you're not listening to me. I'm going to tell you what I think, right? Sometimes married couples will engage in this clamor, right? It's not just a loud argument. It's a loud argument where you're talking past each other, talking at the same time as each other. You're creating a clamor, but nothing good is happening, right? That's—and then slander, which is, I'm going to say things about you to destroy you and hurt your reputation. I'm going to take my revenge on you by what I say to others mainly about you, right? Now, here's the thing you need to be careful about. Remember we talked about repression just a minute ago? There's a lot of people who look at this and go, oh yeah, those are very bad things. Very bad things. I'm glad I conquered that years ago, you know, kind of thing. Or just, I'm just not, I'm just not a very excitable person, I guess. Or like, I, listen, be really careful. Because these are rooted in fairly primal things, like when you get, a, your sense of justice is offended, your sense of security is attacked right? And so there's a lot of people who will say, on the justice level, socially, I forgive you. But the fact that you've offended my sense of security, I felt attacked by you. I'll never actually forget, forgive that. I'll never forget it. I'll repress that I still hold that anger and my fear of eliminating you as a threat, right? Because if, if you don't forgive somebody, a feeling like somebody attacked you, what's the proper response to that? What do you do with threats? You eliminate them. You eliminate them. And you see that with people. I'm not angry at so-and-so. I'm just never going to talk to her again. You know what I mean? So I don't necessarily want to eliminate the threat, but I'm going to eliminate that threat from my life. And maybe if I get a good opportunity from everyone's. You know what I mean? Like, it's that kind of—that kind of attitude. And so in these areas where it's very easy for us to be like, that's not me. It's probably you. Okay, like, if you don't identify with one of those five things, you are repressed. I'll just say it just straight as that. If you don't look at that list and identify with at least one of them, and you're like, I just don't identify with any of them, you're not identifying very well. Right? You're doing the kind of, like, modern American, like, voluntary identification. I can just identify with whatever I want to be instead of, like, realizing what I am. Like, you are one of those—one of those five symptoms is in your life right now. Or is always repercolating up trying to take more space. And you should know what it is. And if you don't know what it is, that's a problem. So you need to suppress it coming out until you can figure out what the malice is so you can get rid of it, okay? Now, remember he says, along with all malice, right? Now malice is a really helpful word because it's not just evil. It's evil directed towards someone else, towards another. Because remember the context here is, the context of this section is, the body of Christ, right? That's the whole context of chapter 4, is the body of Christ. All these believers together making one new humanity, one body, one new family, one people that is the fullness of Christ in the earth, right? You can't have any of this stuff in that. And so he says, listen, when we speak to each other unwholesomely, out of rage, anger, bitterness, slander, you know what, you know where that's coming from? It's coming from malice. 
It's coming from evil in our hearts towards another person. And you have to get rid of it on that level. You have to find what the malice is. And it's there. It's there in you. And it's real, and it's important. Right? He's arguing that all of these things, that bitterness and rage and wrath and clamor and slander, are malice. And the command is, you have to get rid of it, right? Which, of course, the natural answer a lot of people give that is like, okay, let's say it's there, and let's say I knew it was there. How do I get rid of it? Like, it's, it's not a sofa. You know what I mean? Like, and, and the answer is kind of sprinkled into this text. It's mostly go reread chapters 1 through 3 is the answer to that question. Go reread chapters 1 through 3. And learn the truth of the gospel, the beauty of God, what he's done for you, how little you've done for yourself, how gracious and caring and forgiving, how unconcerned he was with what you'd done to him, and how much he was willing to do for you based on your need, rather than based on what you deserved. And that in that he had a vision for making you his workmanship so that you could do good works, not malicious works. And that in that you could become one new humanity so that all the dividing walls of hostility would be put away. And that you could experience this and you could be it as a witness in the whole world. And that that's your destiny. Right? That's, that's it. It's sprinkled in this text. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't you want to please the Holy Spirit? And then the very last line where he says, and forgive each other as God in Christ forgave you. You see, he's, he's also making this positive argument, this helping argument. Right, so let's look at that now. What does that say? Okay. Here's the three parts of the positive argument in this passage. Say what builds each other up, live to please the Holy Spirit, and develop tenderheartedness. Develop tenderheartedness could be said like this. Develop the courage to be tenderhearted. I'll get to that in a minute. So the first is, say what builds others up. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what? What is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit the one who listens. Okay, so there's at least three criteria there. One is that the thing you say should be good. The literal word in the Greek is just the general word for good which in this context would be beneficial. What you say should be good in its nature and should benefit the person you're saying it to. Okay, now remember, this is not an or. It's not, it's not what you say should, should fulfill criteria one or criteria two or criteria three. For something to be rightly let out of your mouth, it must fulfill all three of these criteria. Okay? One, something good beneficial. Two, that it is for the building up of the other person according to their needs. So you have to recognize the, the word used for need there is a strange word that's used only a few times in the New Testament. And it has built into it a sense of personal need and a sense of timeliness. So for example, I could say, you know, you have a lot of problems. Let's go through 10 of them right now, right? That's not what I'm going to do if we sit down and talk. If we sit down and talk, you might be talking about the thing that's messing with you right now. And I might say, I, so I may think, okay, you know, John is telling me this right now. Right now, he has this set of needs. It's my job to build him up. In this thing right now, what is the right thing to say to him in order to build him up? It's good 
It's beneficial. It's designed to construct him or build him up based on the need he has now, right? And it should be able to be classified as grace. So the, the language the Apostle Paul uses, it says, according to grace, which is kind of generic language. But you see, he's been using that word for grace all through chapters 1 through 3. So what he's trying to say is, you see the whole dynamic of God with humanity in chapters 1 through 3? That he's given us every spiritual blessing, that he's predestined us, that he's cared for us, that he's adopted us, that he's loved us, that he's died for us that he, in Christ, that he's done all these things, that he's made all the stuff. He's made us alive when we were dead. He's made us his workmanship. He's all of that grace, 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 grace. Now, when you say something, it should classify as grace. Does that make sense? It should feel like a favorable gift of God. Now, that does not mean it's always positive. Doesn't mean it's always positive. It can be corrective. Words can be difficult. Good words can be very difficult. Candor is a beautiful and biblical and godly thing. Rebuke, good rebuke, and loving good rebuke is all through the Bible. But it needs to be these three things too, right? Because we love to correct other people. We love to say things for other people's good that's really because we want to say it. And we need to be really careful that in everything we say, these three things are part of what we're saying. Does that make sense? If, if, if we do that, if we work on that, if, and if we do it because that's how God treats us, right, we'll speak very differently to each other than most of the world speaks to each other. And listen, just because your fingers are typing it into a phone or you're talking into a phone does not nullify this. You understand? Your entire online persona, everything that you say and do, also falls under this. This is a universal reality of human interaction that is submitted to the beauty of the pleasure of the Holy Spirit. Okay? All right, next thing. Two, live to please the Holy Spirit. He's not a tyrannical father that will make you in his own ridiculous image if you love him. You want to be as imitative of the Spirit as possible. Living to please him is not going to hurt you in any way. Now, think about the logic he uses here. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, in a lot of contexts, this verse is mainly thought to be related to the question of whether or not, if you believe in Jesus, you are eternally secure and therefore going to heaven. Okay? Sealed in the Holy Spirit. This language is also used in chapter 1, verse 13 as well, if you want to compare the two passages. You're sealed in the Holy Spirit, meaning that if you believe in him, God counts what you believe as faith. He does the miracle of regeneration inside of you. You are actually saved. Then you are also then eternally secure in the sense that you will persevere to the end and you will be saved. That is already done in that it has been sealed. Does that make sense? That's the argument. Is the argument right? I'm not sure. It's not a bad argument. It's a pretty good argument because the, the, the seal is related to in the ancient world where you would, you'd have this like stamp and you'd put like wax on something and you'd seal it and the thing couldn't be opened until the person who had sealed it opened it themselves or the person who they had designated it for could open it. So if it says you're sealed for the day of redemption, what he's saying is I've sealed this thing up. On the day of redemption, it will be opened. And the assumption there is it will be open. That is, you'll be redeemed on the day of redemption because it was sealed up now. Does that make sense? It's a perfectly valid argument as far as I can tell. Now, whether or not the Bible gives exceptions to it and how absolute—that's a whole bigger argument I can't get into right now. But if somebody quotes that verse to that direction, that argument makes sense. Now, here's the thing I want to say about that. 
That is not the point here. Okay? That's not the main point. It's the assumed point here. It's assumed if you've been sealed for the day of redemption, you've been sealed up, sealed in for the day of redemption. But you see, why here? Why would he say it here? Don't grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you've been sealed for the day of redemption. He could have said that anywhere. He could have said that in any epistle. Why here, right? Why in this sentence? And the answer is this. I think seals did more than just seal things up. They did more than just seal things up. They put a particular person's mark on something, right? And they authenticated the validity of something. So if I sealed something, in word, I sealed it up for when it was appropriately to be used, but I, but I sealed it up by putting my own name on it and attaching my own identity to it. Now think about this for a second. If you really are a believer, and you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption— you just be, you benefit immensely from that, right? You're going to make it, right? The day of redemption will come. He will unseal this, and you will make it. That's a great comfort. You, you gain immensely from that, not just that you will be saved, but the comfort of the assurance of knowing that God seals up his own and stamps them for the day of redemption. That's a very helpful thing. You've gained so much from that, and God didn't have to promise it up front. He could have made you wait to keep you honest, negatively. And that, that's a tactic. Why not use that tactic? But he doesn't use that tactic. The argument here is positive. You see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, you're sealed up. You are sealed up in the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. But when the Holy Spirit sealed you up, he put his own seal on you. You see? His name is on you. His identity is on you. He marked you as authentic in this world where everybody's watching you. You bear his seal. The only reason you're sealed for the day of redemption is because you bear his seal this moment. You are his. And more than that, you are his in that what he's also sealed up in you is the presence of his Holy Spirit. He said that when you come to believe, when you come to belong to him, the Holy Spirit is not just with you, but in you. The Holy Spirit is always with you and in you. He has sealed you, and he is the present seal with you. So you who have gained so much— in that being sealed up for the day of redemption, that he will keep you as this great shepherd. He will save you as this great redeemer. His seal is on you. So live under that seal. Live like one who's been stamped with the authenticating stamp of the Christ, of God himself. Authenticated to the world. Stamped on your very identity. And yes, benefiting you that you're sealed up forever. Right? So you could say it like this. By his sealing us up, he's put his seal on us. And living as one with that seal is in some ways the greatest privilege of your entire life. You want to come help? Just come right here. It'd be great. (laughs) Three. Okay, so three, and this is maybe even the hardest truth, okay? Which is this. You have to develop tenderheartedness. You have to. It's not optional. Okay, it says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, just as in Christ God forgave you. When we speak maliciously to each other, which is normal humanity, when we harbor rage, malice, anger, rage, clamor, when that's rooted in real malice that we don't even want to know about ourselves or which we even cherish in ourselves, that's normal unredeemed humanity. 
earlier in the chapter, it says it'll cause us to live for our sensuality and our sentimentality instead of living in the sensitivity of the truth and the real needs of other people. It will dishonor God and slowly damn us. Right? It's not enough to say, in Jesus, I have stopped the negative movement. <laughs> that's, that's not the point. Right? It says in chapter 4, right? It says that we were created in God for true righteousness and holiness. Now, in true righteousness and holiness, how is the human heart, the emotional life of a human being experiencing divine redemption, supposed to look? Because in a world of malice expressed by raging and bitterness, expressed in negative, rotten talk, what does the human heart do? It closes up and it hardens. And it gets glib and cynical and sarcastic and closed. It gets increasingly unfeeling. It gets a kind of cirrhosis. It gets protective. It's not—and and what it loses is some of the most sort of basic humanity elements. Kindness. Like, do you feel like you live in a culture that has a poverty of kindness? Because let me tell you, as somebody who has lived in other cultures and been around other places and been among people that many of you would consider very unsophisticated people, but who are very deeply rooted in Christ. I've been around people who lacked other virtues, but they did not lack kindness. And I would live there a thousand years before I would live in a sophisticated place without kindness. In, in order to be kind, there has to be an openness of heart. In, in the NIV translation that you're probably holding, it says compassionate. Now, compassionate is a good word for this in a, in a sense because compassion means to come together with the suffering of another person. So kindness, recognize the humanity of another person. Compassion, recognize the sufferings of that other person. But that's actually really not what the word is in the original language. In the original language, it's much more like a tenderness of heart, which is— in some ways more scary than compassion. Because if I say, look, be compassionate. I'm telling you to do an action. Have a feeling towards a thing, right? They're hurting. Be nice to them, right? If I tell you, look, at bottom, do you know what you're going to have to do as a Christian? At the very bottom, here's what you're going to have to do as a Christian. You're going to have to open your heart fully and completely again. Your heart was made to be open, opened. You were meant to love with the force of a thousand hurricanes. That's what you were created to do. You were meant to do it in line with the truth. But there's a lot of people, probably in this room, who have learned a lot of truths, right? You have been delivered in some sense from the ignorance of ungodliness or worldliness. But the defense mechanisms by which you've closed your heart are still very much operational. Because losing a worldview is terrifying, but op reopening the human heart m might be the most terrifying thing there is. Think about it this way for a second. Think about the moments where Jesus himself produced his greatest triumphs. What were the greatest moments of moral and spiritual triumph of Jesus himself? Think about it for a second. What was happening? Right? I, th I think what you'll find is this. 
The answer is, in the face of terrible speech, filled with bitterness, rage, anger, slander, and clamoring, the malice of people poured forth against him, and in a desire to please God and the Holy Spirit, who was with him, he acted kindly and tenderheartedly and forgave others and purchased their forgiveness and brought to them the kindness of God by never closing his heart to the passionate desire by which he lived in the joy of his mission with full hope that the result of the tenderheartedness of God would soften the hardest, most malicious, most rage-filled, bitter human heart and so cure the poisonous tongue of many people so that they could be sealed for final redemption. That is the glory of Christ. The greatest glory displayed throughout all his acts. That the, perhaps his greatest act of courage is that as God himself, capable of being grieved and pleased, retained an open heart towards a malicious creature, full of rage and malice and rotten speech. And he gave himself in that openness and was murdered in it and rose above it forever. I know that's terrifying. I know, listen, some of you in this room have been treated horrifically badly by the people who should have been the most open-hearted towards you, the most protective towards you. Whether parents or people in authority— people in authority in the church, people who should have been a friend to you. Or maybe you're just very sensitive and everything, even little things have hurt you a lot. And so maybe the things done against you weren't incredibly brutal, but because of the sensitivity God has given your temperament that could be used for the love of others, the pain is very strong. And maybe you've been really stupid and you've done a lot of things to create hatred in others that they've then loosed on you that's hurt you even more. Listen, I, there's no end to the amount of human pain there is. And you may have had what you might consider far more than your fair share of it for your tender age or advanced age. But God will make you new. You must be made new. The one who has sealed you for forever has put his stamp on you for this moment. He has put his spirit in you. He is, he is calling you and demanding that you put off the old humanity and put on the new humanity. He is demanding that you receive your inheritance, that you would be remade in godliness and holiness. He has stated to you that he made you alive when you were dead so that you could be his own craftsmanship and do that good which he has prepared beforehand for you to do. And at the root of it, it can go no further than the first step if you do not realize that we can get nowhere until we shut our mouths when we are going to speak rottenly. Know that we are not here to grieve the Holy Spirit. Recognizing malice for what it is and to put it away. To speak words that build others up. To live to please the Holy Spirit. And to have the courage to pursue God in his own open-heartedness until we experience it ourselves. 
Because remember, the end goal is love. No closed heart can love the way it must. And love is the work of a warrior. It is the work of courage in a fallen world. In heaven, it will be the work of peacetime. Comfort yourself with that. If you bear the seal forever, you will love with ease. For eon after eon, you will be pleased and please without the least effort. But in this mortal coil, now, under what remains of the hold of the curse, love is the work of warriors. But the greatest has gone before you and has sealed you and has forgiven you and stands with you and has been your example in everything greater and has triumphed over it. And as he was raised from the dead, he was raised over all malice, including the malice of hell. And he can carry you above it too. Lord, I pray that you would help us to take what we say with our mouths very seriously to face the malice that's within us and to not repress it and to turn to you to speak the way we should, to please you as we're called and to grow in the basic kindness, forgiving, and tenderheartedness that is the first step of this work. We pray in Jesus' name.